Good morning. Uh, wow, I'm in shock. I just touched the stand and it didn't go down like it normally does on me. Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, today is an exciting sermon, an exciting opportunity to look at Scripture and let God preach to us um, because uh, the message is uh, a combination of so many things and uh, I would like for us to have a prayer and just ask God to teach you and teach me and encourage us all. Father God, we come before you today asking you to be our teacher you to be our encourager, you to be our preacher, to be the one that challenges us to apply the teachings and the understanding of this situation to our lives and make ourselves more as servants to you. Father, these are words that are challenging. They're words of uh, uh, enlightenment for us. They truly are words of an unveiling of your will and your direction. Father, help us to appreciate your candidness with us, your availability uh, in sharing who you are with us so that we might boldly come into the future without fear and trembling. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for the sermon today is a little confusing because I said there's something about looking back and then something looking forward. And I think there is a challenge there in that sometimes we find ourselves spending so much time looking back in life that we don't ever look forward with expectation. And I think that as we look at the book of Revelation, we can find a scripture that is trying to say to us, the future ultimately is in God's hands, worry not. Go to the future with excitement and expectation. Now, having said that, we certainly want to learn from the past. We certainly recognize without what Christ did for us in this room, we would have no future. So to say that the past and the future are separated would be incorrect. They're very much a blended experience because what has occurred in the life of us in the past impacts how we handle ourselves today, and in the future. Another topical idea that I came up with as I looked at this is the fact that as you look at Revelation 19 and 20, as we're moving toward finally a closure in just a couple of, in one more chapter or two more chapters after this, uh, as we look at chapters 21 and 22, um, it seems like we're beginning to look at sort of a, a celebration. And as we're looking at this celebration, it's almost like a party experience as we look at this because we can look at the very beginning of this and we can see uh, excitement occurring around what is, has happened because we've experienced up to now. And if you look even in your bulletin, there's a kind of an outline that, that's in there that gives a description of, of, of over the many, many chapters where God has worked how He has been righteous, how He has been fair, how He has been gracious as He took the church out of the situation and yet the world continued to be rebellious toward Him and how He in His righteousness did step out and begin to say there will be punishments to try to wake you up. There were times in history when we can see that God was trying to give the people hear a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance to repent, to recognize that He is the Creator God who wants to have fellowship with Him and give their lives meaning and direction. And yet, eventually, God says, I've got to deal with these people because they're not going to get serious about this. So we begin to see a lot about different kinds of judgments throughout the book of Revelation. But we get down to this chapter chapter 19, chapter 20, and we begin to see a level of closure occurring. And uh, I, it does seem like a kind of a party atmosphere as you look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. There's an excitement. There's a positive attitude of what's happening. 
Now, I don't know how you are about celebrations and parties. I confess to you that uh, I tend to not be the greatest in the world when it comes to celebrations and parties and that kind of thing. I tend to say, okay, fine, I appreciate that. Now, let's move on. But uh, that's not the way, actually, God says we ought to be. Because in the Scripture, it even has celebration. It has joy. It has time. Because we have seen earlier in the book of Revelation, in chapters 4 and 5, where John was looking up from the island of Patmos, was looking into heaven, and he noted that in heaven there was an excitement over what God was and who God was and what He was doing. And there was praise and there were songs and there was all kinds of excitement going on. And again, when we look at chapter 19, verses 1 to 6, we see one more time praise and hallelujah and singing and joyful attitude that's going on. But it's a little bit different in that if you'll note as we review this in chapter 19, verse 2, it talks a little bit about why some of that joy was existing. And part of the joy was, and we have to recognize that in the Scripture, to a certain degree, we're dealing with people that have been through many, many things historically. John was living at a time when Christ had been persecuted. He, growing up in, within that Jewish community, was very much aware of the way that a lot of what he would say would be received. And he began to think about how what the, the hurts were. And even as you've heard different people share testimony, such as Peter or Stephen or various other writers in the Scripture, they would go back and they would review history. Again, that thing of saying that history in the past and what we're going to have for prophecy in the future and what we're in today are all blended. And those preachers oftentimes and those people would go back and they would say, remember how God took care of us in this situation, how God took care of us in that situation, and he would review that with them. Um, today, as we look at this, this particular part of this, and we look in verse 2 of chapter 19, we have to understand that we, we here, here see a unique terminology because the reference is again going back to the presentation of Babylon. And Babylon has been presented, as we've talked about previously, as both an economic power as well as a place, or and also a political power, and also religious power. And it had different ways of defining why Babylon had been viewed by God as such a horrible, whorish-like place. And so the Scripture uses some terminology. In verse 2 it says, For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now it's interesting in verse 1 he uses the word hallelujah. We see the word hallelujah. But I've wondered why use such strong language? And if you look at chapter 19 verse 2, we have to understand that obviously in God's mind, prostitution, adultery are unacceptable behaviors. They are viewed in a negative way. They're presented in a negative way. And here in this illustration, it goes back and it says that in this negative way do I criticize the actions and behavior of Babylon, the people who have denied him, who have said with, with their mouth, I worship another God. And I think it's important for us to understand because, frankly speaking, we live in a world of compromises. And even to use the word adultery, to use the word prostitution, are words that sometimes have changed their meaning with history. Uh, we, have, we have compromised and we, we find ourselves trying to say, well, it's, it's just people that uh, uh, were unfortunate and found a different way to employ themselves. But that's not the picture 
that God has presented because for him, he sees this as the same kind of attitude that is seen when people treat him as anything less than the Creator God and the one that they should have relationship with. We have a lot of things in our society today that have taken us to points of compromise. A lot of vocabulary, a lot of thinking. I don't know where you are personally, but I feel that we are massaged often by our society into gradually changing our standards. Now, would it were that I did not need to mention standards? No pastor ever likes doing that. You know, I remember listening to Robert Schuller preach forever and a day. One of the things he never used was the word sin because he knew the word sin made people uncomfortable. But I think he was doing a grave injustice to his people because if we're not honest with each other, We're also not being honest with God. And as we're not honest with the Scripture, then that is certainly sinful and very dangerous. But as we think about our society today, we think about the areas of compromise in which we live, we all have to establish standards. And here are some areas I think we all have to establish some kind of a value toward. The issues of pro-life, abortion. What is our definition of marriage? I was completing a form recently, and on the form it asked the question, uh, are you single, are you married, uh, do you have a common law partner? And it kept going into this. You know, when I was young, we, they actually used a term quite honest, uh, quite often that was referred to as, are you living in sin? You know, of course, that word would not be popular today, so we just wouldn't use it. But there's a good question there for us to consider. Prostitution as a legal alternative. Public prayer being controlled where it's proper, where it's not proper. Sex education for children as a, by definition, preparedness for sexual activity. Physicians forced to perform procedures dealing with euthanasia and this kind of thing. Cheating on our taxes. Illegal business practices for our own benefit. There are many things that we we find that we probably, if we're not careful, as society has gradually massaged words and terminologies, we have found ourselves saying, yeah, more or less, more or less. Sometimes more or less is just less. But to follow God means that we have to recognize for him prostitution and adultery in our relationships with people and our relationships with God is a way that we can find clear definition for how we should or should not be relating to people or to God. Let us be bold Christians, ones who sing and give praise on the day that Jesus returns. God understood prostitution and adultery, and that's the reason He used those terms. He wanted it to be understood by us. Another thing we look in Scripture and we go on through, and we can find in chapter 2, as it moves on, it moves into the discussion of the wedding. And it talks about this great wedding that's been prepared for, and who will be invited. Very exciting if you look at verses 6 through about verse 9, because it refers to the omnipotent God who is involved in this picture. And it says, hallelujah, again. And then we move on, and we see that the wedding was for the Lamb and for the church. That it was a time that's going to be exciting. It's a pulling of things together. It mentions the clothing that they're going to be wearing. And so all of this is taken in the system. But the main key to this is, for Christians, we have been invited. And the invitation, just being allowed to be there, is what the whole key of this particular scripture is. And the invitation will go for those also who have made decisions during the tribulation period, which again is on that... uh, on your chart that we had at an earlier time, uh, to recognize that there was a seven-year period where basically there was not a lot of witness going on. The witness was primarily coming out of people's historical understanding that the Bible might have truth in it. 
and a few people dare to go ahead and make decisions, they also will be invited to this wedding. Worshiping Him, verse 10. Verse 10, 11, and 12. Right in here, we see some very interesting scriptures. Verse 10 is one where John gets so excited as he's listening and working with this angel to try to understand this vision that he actually finds himself emotionally getting in a position ready to worship the angel, just giving praise for the great words that the angel has brought. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation that you've gotten that excited But that is his situation. And the angel, very smartly, I should say, immediately stops him. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't get confused. I am not here with any special power. I am not God. You do not worship me. I've never been designed for that purpose. I'm just like you. I am a tool here to serve. You know, confusion is something that comes in all of our lives at times when it comes to our understanding of worship. When we came here to worship this morning, our worship included the music, it includes the prayer, it includes the giving, it includes our listening to God's Word. The whole experience needs to be us focusing on God. And whether you like what I say or not, doesn't matter. Listen and hear carefully and watch closely When we look at the Scripture, those are the important words because they are the ones that challenge us to be more in our service to God. But as we continue to look through the Scripture here and we look into verses 12 and 13, we begin to see that it does show that Christ is coming again. And this is when Christ shows up at the party. The party and the celebration began back at that early stage and here it is. He's finally come. The omnipotent God has stepped into the picture, and the wedding is ready to occur, and it shows that the clothing is ready, the lamb is ready, the bride is ready, the church is ready. It's a very exciting time. Now, I don't know how you are about weddings. Some people say, oh, good, what a wonderful idea, get to go to another wedding. My response toward going to another wedding is mm, a little bit more like my views of celebration. I need to change my attitude a little bit. But it may be because I've also had some challenges in my life with weddings. Um, but as, as in China, one of the things I found interesting is the, in the, with the Zhuang people, and with the Yao people and the Miao, just multiple different people groups, those people groups really had some of the similarities of the way that we find the Jewish people dealt with weddings. Because the weddings basically began with a betrothal, a collection of people, and then a wedding feast. You know, if you think about Chinese, in general, we always have that wedding banquet out there somewhere. Now, it may be a small wedding banquet, maybe a large wedding banquet, but it's kind of waiting to happen. So celebration is something that Chinese are not unfamiliar with. And as we looked in here and we find what the the Jewish people would have understood when this was presented to them, and as John was certainly understanding all of this, his thinking when he heard wedding was very much tied to the betrothal. You know, in the Jewish, they would go and they would meet the father. The, the, the groom would meet the father. He would have a, they would write down a little contract. There would be an understanding of money. Now, believe me, um, I love to watch the cultural issues here. Uh, I have a friend that recently has gone through this experience. He was marrying a Chinese from the mainland, and um, the, cha- the mainland parents had certain financial requirements of this young man, and he began to not understand, and I got a phone call, and he said, Help me to understand, am I buying a wife? And um, I had to say, well, not exactly, but yeah, a little bit. And so we went into this nice long discussion trying to understand the cultural implications and and, and what he was doing by giving certain certain money and certain things to to the parents and how for them you were dealing with uh, a lot of long-term implications uh, in the matter, but as as John's situation was when he was listening and was in this vision situation, um, 
very much was an understanding of the betrothal process. And one of the things I find with some of the people groups in China, they also had the little they had the situation where people will, will they'll have the uh, the bride or the groom come riding in, and because it depends on the particular people group, come riding in usually on a small white horse. And that little white horse will come into town, and they'll have some of the. I'm sorry, you'll have to forgive me from my perspective. This is my Westernization at this point. Some of the worst sounding musical instruments I've ever heard playing. Uh, but it's very exciting and everybody's wearing their nicest clothing and you're hearing this music that doesn't resemble anything you've ever heard before. And, um, but it's an exciting time in that everybody's involved. And, and it's a cultural event. And that's when they go and they do the collection. Now the fun, funny part of the collection thing is, especially with the Dong people, and some of you will note when when I send you an email at the very bottom it'll say it'll I'll have D O N G, Dong. That was originally Don Gardner, and the G got over too close, and it became Dong. And then everybody thought I was working with the Dong people, and so I've just stuck with it and been Dong forever. But the point is with the Dong people, um, they actually would hide. They'll hide the the uh, the uh, bride, and the groom has to find her. The groom and the groomsman have to find where she is. So they've got a little game hooked up to the whole situation. So different cultures have different views. But the point is, the wedding is a celebration. It's an exciting time. It's something to look forward to. And then the last thing is the banquet. Now, the banquet, I don't even need to get into discussion on that one, because you've all been to a Chinese banquet at some time, whether you wanted to go or not. It just, I mean, it's just always part of life, I think, within most Chinese societies. But it's long, it lasts forever, and it's always a challenge. The thing I always find the greatest challenge is when I get a hold of a couple that the, the married, the couple getting married don't drink. Um, they try everything they can to find a way to get around the issue because everybody around at the, the banquet is expecting them to drink something. So they're working on trying to find alternatives, uh, creative alternatives for drinking different kinds of uh, orange juice or whatever throughout the evening. But uh, the, the point is, anyway, the wedding banquet is a very exciting time. And so this is a very positive experience uh, as we watch all of this happening. But in verse, um, anyway, from there we move on to verse uh, chapter 19, verse 14. In chapter 19, verse 14, uh, it refers to the armies of heaven that were following him. Now, we just said that Christ has come. He's come for the wedding. That's great. But he's also prepared for the war. Now, I don't know how you are about preparation issues. But I know when my wife and I married, we married in Texas. We married uh, expecting everything would go as smoothly as possible. And the reason I add the as possible is because always there's something. In our case, that we got married on December the 20th. Well, I know that many of you think, well, Texas, that's so far south for sure. They don't get a lot of cold weather. And if you think that, you're wrong. Uh, we have ice storms. So when the temperature hits about minus 7, minus 8, and it starts coming down, it very well can turn into ice. And when the ice storms hit, the result is it gets on the, the wires and freezes. You begin to have uh, different wires, electricity and things freezing over. And the roads are just treacherous. And we got married on December the 20th and we had an ice storm. And we weren't prepared for the ice storm. We were prepared for a wedding. Suddenly, I had uh, a very good friend from about six hours away that was planning on driving in, I got a phone call. He couldn't come. But I did have a friend that had come in the day before, had flown in from California for the wedding. He ended up staying three days. We went ahead. We had the wedding that evening. We had a number of people that had difficulty getting there. After it was over with, everyone slid back home um, on the roads. But my friend found that the airplanes were not flying the next day nor the next day. So he had to keep waiting to leave. 
It was unprepared for. But it's very interesting as we look at chapter 19, verse 14, that indeed the armies of heaven followed Christ into the picture. That means that we have to recognize God got it. He knew who he was dealing with. He understood how Satan functions. And he knew Satan was not going to change. I think we need to understand Satan at least partially that well. Satan may change his form, may change his approach, but ultimately he is not going to change his color. He will continue to keep coming. And so the armies were with Christ as he came. And as we look in chapter 19, verses 14 to 21, we see even though that was a time for a wedding, that there were also very strange things going on. So there was very good preparation for whatever comes. And I think to a certain degree we all need to recognize in our lives, we need to be prepared for eventualities, for whatever opportunity comes. And it says that, on, in verse 16, it said, On his robe and on his thigh, he had the name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried. Now this is a separate part of this. Who cried out saying, All the birds, get ready. All you vultures that are out there, be prepared. Because it goes ahead and describes through here. And it even says it's going to take up to seven months to bury the dead after this battle happens, but I know that Satan and his people are bringing war. And when they come with this war, I'm prepared this time, and I'm not going to be ill-prepared. If he comes, let it be. I will not run any. It is time to have a standard. Brothers and sisters, what I want to say, what I see in this, from a Christian perspective, we have to have standards and be prepared. We are going to have more and more things coming at us in the world in which we live that are values that do not represent the things of God. Our question is, do I support it just simply because the government says it, our society says it? When they say this is right, we still need deeply to look within ourselves and look within the Scripture and find out is this right in God's eyes? Not an easy task because the conclusion may be that God has conflict with the society and where we are. It says, I saw a beast, this verse 19, a beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider of the horse and his army. Again, preparation. But the beast was captured, verse 20, and with him the false prophet. Now, we remember the study that showed that Satan had two friends that he had working on his team, the beast and the false prophet. And it says here, again, that was back in chapter 13 of Revelation. And it says that uh, they had performed miraculous signs in, 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 and been able to trick many, many people. With those signs, they had deluded uh, those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And then in verse 21, it said, The other ones who were following were killed. And the Scripture challenges us with the significance of it. In Ezekiel chapter 39, Ezekiel chapter 39 in the Old Testament, it said it takes seven months just to bury the dead. There were that many people that were died. Is this because God likes killing people? No. These are ones we must remember. This is, these are not the church. The church is not in this picture exactly. At this point, we're dealing with people who have intentionally denied and chosen not to follow God, who have chosen to follow Satan as their God. Again, an adulterous situation. In, uh, then we move on and we look at the thousand years. Now we're looking at chapter 20. Chapter 20 moves us beyond the wedding, beyond the battle, 
Now remember, the, the, the false prophets now in the beast have been removed from the picture. They have been sent into the lake of fire. But in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, we get clarification on where Satan is. And Satan at this point in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, we see that he is seized because there was an angel that came into the picture with a chain and the authority to deal with Satan. Now, some people will argue whether or not this particular reference to an angel is Christ or not, simply saying that only Christ would have the authority and the power to control Satan. Now, I don't know how you deal in your mind with that, but I, that would not be even slightly surprising to me because I've struggled personally at times in my life with things that I did not have to guess over whether or not it was something of Satan or not. I can still remember, and I've mentioned this to you previously, a time when I got with some friends that were trying to get me what was referred to as the gift of the Spirit in the sense of speaking in tongues. And we went together and we prayed and we prayed. And, and there was a, a lot of issues in what was going on. And finally I began to see things going on. I mean, even as a young person at that point who really was having to go back and search Scripture because I had not prepared myself to understand what they were going after and what they were presenting. And as I went back as a, a 19 or a 20-year-old and I said, you know, looked and said, okay, now is, is it necessary that I get this gift of the Spirit thing? I want to be a real Christian. I want to be in every way used by God. Is this vital for me? Do I have to have this? If it is, then God, please give it to me. If it's not, no thank you. And I studied and I studied. Sometimes things are not real clear. Sometimes they're very clear. But I had to go back and I had to, to evaluate um, how, how significant that was going to be. Well, in, in chapter, as we look in the Scriptures right here, and we see this situation, Satan steps into this, and we, we know in chapter, chapter 3 that it says, it has been surmised that this was Christ, because indeed, he had the authority to deal with this. But now, who has the authority to deal with um, our, own, our own sin? I, I, I think as we... We have to note that, in, that with mankind in, in thousands of years, none of us have successfully controlled Satan. And I continued, even as I was meeting with my friends and we were praying over this thing, I kept saying, you know, is this thing really of Satan that you, that you pray in tongues? Or is this really of God that you pray in tongues? And is this speaking in tongues thing speaking in languages? Or is this speaking in uh, some gibberish that I couldn't understand? And then, we, and then we call it the, the, the Holy Spirit language. What, what is this? And I really struggled. And I can't say that I came up with a real quick, good answer. But I did know one thing. And that was that ultimately, Satan was in my life at that point giving me a battle. Because God was trying to tell me one thing. Satan was trying to tell me something. And I needed to find truth. And I was struggling for it. And you know, sometimes I think... That struggle is a healthy experience. In my case, I grew a great deal from that opportunity. And I think that uh, uh, as we consider the power of Satan and the fact that, that some would say that, it was, that, that truly the angel with the chain and with the authority to throw Satan into the abyss it makes perfectly good sense to me because I certainly do not control Satan well in my life. Sometimes I am successful. Sometimes I think I am successful and I'm still a failure. The exciting part of this, again, going back to the, part, the positive part of the story, the celebration of it all is for a thousand years, according to Scripture, as you look at chapter 20, verses 4 onward, it describes and it says that Satan at that point, is taken out of the picture and Satan is placed in the abyss. Now, abyss is a bottomless pit. The abyss, according to Scripture, it, it just goes on and on. There's no way to get out. They kept it, said that's where he's going to be for a thousand years. Now, why a thousand years? I don't know. 
I've read different writers. They've got different opinions. I'm not, not sure that anybody really knows on that. Why would God release him after a thousand years? That's my big question. I don't quite understand that. There are people with different views on that. But you know, ultimately, when we look at it, that's God's choice. And it says that he's placed out of the situation for a thousand years. And it, in verse, chapter 19, verses 14, fifth, uh, chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6, we see what happens with the martyrs. Now, the martyrs are really exciting because in China I have met people who have known martyrs for Christ. People who have known friends that have died for the cause of Christ. People who would stand up and say, I will not compromise my faith if it impacts my walk with Christ. Well, in verses 4, 5, and 6, the Scripture says that the martyrs will reign with Christ. That during this thousand-year period, there's going to be a new rule. And the new rule will have Christ in a different role than He's ever been in. You know, previously, most of us, we think of Jesus, we think of Good Friday Jesus, the one that's suffering, has His hands with nails in them and struggling and painful on our behalf and bleeding on a cross, dying on a cross for us. It's very sad. Some of us remember, though, the Easter Jesus. The Easter Jesus is the risen Jesus. The one that even after He suffered it all, He came back. A new man. Living again. Conquering death. That is the Christ that we see here during the thousand years. We don't see a defeated Jesus in anyone's definition. Now see, by definition, Satan thought he had won the first time. When he looks at the cross, his perspective was, got it. Do this, kill him, and it's all over. As you know and I know, was not the case. But the issue there is that the Jesus we see in Revelation is a victorious Jesus. Not only just a successful, I got out of it, I'm now above death, but we've got a victorious Jesus that has come and has finally been able to deal specifically with Satan, who has moved Satan out of the picture and has finally said to human beings, now you have an even playing field. Now you are here, the ones that were still left on the earth at that point, who repopulate the, the, the earth during that thousand years, have a choice still. God does not say to them, just because Jesus is living over here and sitting on a throne, you have to follow Him. Freedom of choice still exists. There will be those who still struggle. There will be those that do not follow. And indeed, after a thousand years, Satan will be set free again. And he's all he's, what is Satan going to do? Same thing he always does. Satan hasn't changed. Well, you and I have to be careful. Any of us that think Satan might have gotten a little easier on people, you're wrong. He doesn't get easy. He may use a new strategy. But he's still functioning. And even after a thousand years, knowing full well who God is, still Satan does not give up. And he comes back. And as we look at verses 4 to 10, it talks about and reminds us that he's going to have another try. And the first thing he does is go out and try to recruit. Like I told you a couple of weeks ago, Satan is an evangelist. But he's an evangelist not for Jesus. He's an evangelist for himself. He has the gospel, but it's not the gospel that we follow. We have to be very, very careful because he can use the same vocabulary words and alter the meaning. And so we look at Satan and we have to recognize Satan knows Scripture. You know, I don't know how you are about this. I really struggled. I struggled even as I was preparing and reading this today. Uh... Satan knows Scripture. He understands Scripture. He is, he is definitely literate because we can remember back in history how he would use 
Old Testament Scripture and just kind of alter the meaning. And he would even talk to Jesus and say, well, don't forget, and he would use Scripture. Well, that means, as we think about that, he knows, he's read the book of Revelation. He knows what the final decision is going to be. He knows what's going to happen. My question is, if you know all of that, why? Why would you play into the hands of God? If you know what the final result is going to be, why do that? Why not make a little alteration here and there? Why not change? A number of years ago, I was in Thailand. And I have a friend that lived outside of Chiang Mai. And this friend is Thai and had been working for a number of years with AIDS patients. And so there were a number of us that were very interested, curious, whatever the term may be, in her work. And one day, Tan came to us and she said, you know, I can take three people with me today if anybody's interested. And so I went with her. And we went to visit this lady. We got to this lady's, and I'll call it a hut. Um, It was not much more than that. It was a a space that was the size of a large walk-in closet. Inside the hut front door, there was a small refrigerator about, oh, I guess about a meter tall. Sitting on top of the refrigerator was a picture of her husband and her child, and the husband holding the child. Well, the lady that I was seeing had a child in her hand. The lady weighed maybe 60 pounds. And the child was very, very small. And as we talked... I found that I was having a great struggle. And the struggle was, I know the Scripture tells us not to hate, right? We're not supposed to hate. We're supposed to be loving, sweet Christians that care and show our concern for other people. But that day, I looked at that picture, and she kept talking, and Tan kept translating. And to be honest with you, I would have to say it was hate. I don't know what the term would be. It began to come into my heart. It was anger. You can using a nice, good Christian term. I call it righteous indignation. You know, but that's that's that good religious religious vocab. But in fact, I was really angry because she was sharing with us that she had HIV and was dying, and that the baby was dying. And that both of them, according to what the doctors had said, had less than six months left. The husband had already died. And so AIDS was alive and well and going strong, doing its thing. The man, basically, you can, we, can, we can talk about adultery and the impact of adultery. We can talk about the lack of faithfulness. We could talk about it different things, but the man basically knew what he was doing and kept doing it. And he was running around with different women and he brought it home as a gift to his wife. And so she ended up getting the same illness and that illness then was transferred into their children, who were dying, or the, the daughter that was dying. And I could just remember because I kept looking at that picture and she would talk and And I kept thinking, what is that picture doing sitting on your refrigerator? How could you even keep it in the house? He's a murderer. He's killing you and he's killing that precious child. How can you continue to keep that picture? When I look at Satan, and I know Satan knows the whole story, and he knows what's going to happen, and he knows what the future is going to be. And yet, he doesn't change. Maybe he can't change. Maybe he just, there's not even that little touch of decency within him. So there's no hope of him even changing a little. But for sure, that woman's husband was that way. He knew what he was doing. He changed nothing. The result became a murderer. His life impacted the lives of others. Satan and his behavior impacts the lives of millions. And the Scripture says 
that indeed there will be a day. And after a thousand years, Satan will be put away for good. So is this a time of celebration? Believe me, brothers and sisters, this is a celebration of, of huge proportions. This is bigger than Chinese New Year in Asia. This is a serious celebration. And then as we go on, and we look at the very end of chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, after we've seen this, this amazing situation going on with finally seeing Satan limited and controlled, we have to see the white throne judgment. And that is a judgment where indeed clarification occurs and judgment over the lives of people. And it uses a very interesting scripture, and I'll go ahead and read it to let you hear it. In verse 12 it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Notice all are treated equally. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death of Hades gave up the dead uh, that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. But if you look on, it says, Then the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Again, at this point, what it says is not you're judged based on did you do a whole lot of good things. Now, folks, this is our challenge. You know, we've got this mixed up view that somehow if you do good things, you'll work your way to heaven. I remember there was a song many years ago by a singer by the name of Glenn Campbell. Now, you'd have to be ancient like me to remember that name. And there are a few in the room. But Glenn Campbell sang a song, and I still remember in the middle of it, it had a song, it had a lyric that said, you know, something about if you're good and you do real good things and you just don't offend people, you'll have a home in heaven. And I, I can remember that because it's not true. It's not accurate. That's not enough. It's more than just doing good things. As it said, if your name is not in the book, the book of life, the book that says, I will follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, that book, there's a problem. Last week I was in a meeting here in our church, and there was a discussion going on about doing a mission trip. And the mission trip, eventually one person in the room, very, uh, in, in a very sweet way, made a comment and said, you know, one of the things about that particular mission trip that we need to understand is, do we really need to go and why? And the way it was said, I, I remember looking over at a particular individual in the room who was in charge of that part of the conversation. And she was the missions uh, director of that particular meeting. So obviously it was the Cantonese congregation, not you guys. But as that comment came, I, I could tell the look on her face was just total depression, total disappointment, a real sense of frustration that that would be coming out. And as that came out, I know I also was listening and I thought, Wow, how do we say that? But you know, that is part of our issue. To become a Christian is not an issue of attending a baptism class. You can go to a baptism class. Now, baptism classes are good. I'm not criticizing baptism classes. What I'm saying is you can go to a baptism class and you can learn all the right answers. You can memorize the right answers. But just because you've been in the baptism class doesn't necessarily guarantee that you've done anything afterwards besides get in a wet pool and get wet. You know, that's about all. The question about baptism, baptism is a sign of an inward action that has occurred. And so that is the question that even we had to deal with. As I listened to that comment about whether or not it was important to do missions, I was really struggling because it challenged me to ask myself, is our church 
clearly aware of the fact that we're here for purpose. You know, when I look at Revelation 19 and 20, and I see in Revelation 19 and 20 the fact that God is taking all this action on your behalf, on my behalf. He is doing all of this for our good so that we can have eternal life, so that we can walk with Him. He's got a plan that's just amazing. He's even marrying us in a formal way to be able to say, this is my family in every sense of the word. Why would we not want to have more people in that family? Don't we understand that according to the Scripture, if you're not in the party, you're in utter darkness for eternity. That's what the Scripture says. The Scripture says you either get on or you get off. There's nothing in the middle. It's not a game. So today, I want us to ask ourselves as we look at Revelation 19 and 20. Revelation 19 and 20, yes, it's written and designed for a little bit different audience than us. And yet, I see principles all the way through here that say to me, the church cannot play games with God. We have an opportunity today to be a real family. To be a loving family with each other and to care. You know, every now and then I hear of different issues that we have going on within our church. They're all minor compared to the, the, the idea that we don't give ourselves fully to Jesus as Lord. If Jesus is Lord, all these other things will fall in place. Today, my prayer is that we will grasp why it is that God is going to judge and the fact that we are loved by Him so much. Let us pray. Father God, we do come before You not, not seeking to be academicians, not seeking to learn more for our own uh, uh, purposes. We come asking Your Word to be our teacher. We ask that the, the true content of this service today come from You, and from your Scripture, that you would talk to each one of us in our own heart about what you want to talk about. Father, help us to realize we live in a society that should not be guiding us, but that we need to be impacting with our walk. Father, help us to care enough to learn and to grow and to serve Enough to cooperate with each other. To not compromise with Satan. To recognize his desire to deceive us. And to abuse our testimony. Father, help us to be bold. Help us to learn from your scripture and apply it to the lives we have. In Jesus' name.